Friends, let me invite you to turn to the uh, 49th chapter of Genesis. We come towards the very, very close of uh, our series in Genesis. We're not quite there yet. We've got a little bit to go through. And uh, so we come to the deathbed of Jacob. You recall last time, a couple weeks ago, we were in this, uh, this weird setting, this weird scenario where Joseph brings his two kids to Jacob and wants them to get blessed. And J- Joseph kind of sets it up. The older gets the best, younger gets the worst. And Jacob does a kind of a uh, tricksy. He crosses his hands and uh, shows the power of God's grace. Well, we come now to the deathbed of Jacob. We will, we'll read from verse 1 all the way through verse 28. We'll not read the whole of the chapter, but uh, most of it. Chapter 49, verse 1 through verse 28. Let's come now to hear God's word. Let's hear the word of Moses. Let's rest in it. Let's receive it, expecting God to work in it and through it as it's read. We read that then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it's cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shalom comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by the spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to him, them, as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God does neither. It endures forever. Let's pray once more. Let's ask briefly God's blessing upon the preaching and the hearing of his word. Almighty God, we come to receive your blessing. We pray you would give us not a curse, but a word that heals, that brings peace, that revives, that gives us life. We ask this as your people, not deserving any of it, but because of your wondrous grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, if you want to be successful in life, you have to take it by the horns. If you want to be somebody who is a strong person, you have it in you and you just need to do it. You need to go for it. You need to look out for number one. You need to achieve it. Set your goals and you can achieve them. Any goal you set, as long as it's, you know, somewhat reasonable, you can do it. And when you do, when you get that touchdown... Give a salute to God in the end zone. Maybe you cross yourself if you're Catholic. Or just mention Jesus on the stage or in the post-game interview. Give glory to God in some vague way, and that'll be great. Retroactively allow him to bless your achievements. And more than that, make sure everybody knows how great you are. The best way to do that is to give yourself a nickname. The babe. The king, muddy waters. And you certainly can't be in a podunk town like Cleveland. Take your talent to South Beach. You can't be in a market like Atlanta. You have to leave the Braves. Leave your hometown team and go to the Cubs. That's what you have to do. If you want to be great... You need money, you need ambition, you need achievement, and then sign off saying glory to God. Don't stay in obscurity. Don't stay. Don't be a big fish in a small town. Don't stay where you're weak. Be strong and make sure people know you're strong. Make sure they know how great you are. Your skill set's amazing. Your resume is magnificent. Your life's perfect. Tell them on Facebook repeatedly. Show them continually on Instagram. You're great, and God wants you to be great. Many preach those words. Many say those words. And maybe you don't want to say it as your own view, but it actually is in many ways. This theology, or what we call the American dream, is deep in our bloodstream. It's deep in our bloodstream. And whether you feel this way or not, it's not just an American thing, it's a human thing. This desire to achieve, desire to be great and glorious. And this path to achieving greatness is always working. But the Bible comes to us right in the face and slaps us and says, you're wrong. 
The Bible says this is not actually the way you get glory. This is not actually the way you get real success in life. There's a different path, a different way, and it's God's way. So this morning, we're going to see God's way from the deathbed. We're going to see what I've called the uh, the death gospel. because It sounds kind of painful. And, uh, well, it's, it's on the deathbed that we hear it. We come to this guy, Jacob. This text today takes place when he's in the hospital room. Well, not in the hospital room, in his home back in those days. And he's, uh, he's dying. Not got long to live. And so he gathers around his family. He gathers around his 12 sons. And he has something to say to them. And even in verse 1, he tells them literally in the last days. The text, the ESV says days to come. It's, it's the, the last days. You see, Jacob is actually foretelling. He is giving the first big extended prophecy in the Bible. That's the first one. He is foretelling what will happen in centuries down the road, future generations. And perhaps the weird thing is uh, what we find in the first seven verses. The, The first weird thing is the blessings that don't sound like blessings. We're told in verse 28, the last verse I read, that technically Jacob is blessing these sons. But they don't sound like blessings, not the first ones, not, the, not, not, not these first seven verses. When someone wants to give you a blessing, it's usually not, may you be cursed. And yet, in verse 7, he says, cursed be Simeon and Levi, for example. So the first three sons get blessings that sound like curses. Weird, strange. What's going on here? Let's look. Let's look, okay? We'll start here with the firstborn, Reuben. The oldest, the eldest, verse three, the one who would have the double blessing, the best deal, the longest lines, the highest glory. And it's interesting that Jacob in verse three begins there. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. You're my might. You're my glory. You're amazing. You're preeminent in dignity. You have all the things. You have the resume that everybody wants because you were born first. You have the glory. But then he takes it away. He says, you are preeminent, but you won't have it. You are glorious, but you won't be it. You see, by birth, by nature, by created order, by gift, Reuben is the best. Jacob doesn't deny that. He affirms, Reuben, you're in a special place. You're my might. You have certain things that should be coming to you. But then this weird statement, verse 4, unstable as water. I mean, if you were thinking of kind of a cutting, snarky comment, if you were thinking of a kind of a comeback to give to somebody, a real zinger, I don't think you would use, you're so unstable, you're like water. I don't think that's really going to cut it for our day. So what does it actually mean? It's a weird phrase. It's not a put down we use. The word unstable, to help us out here, it implies insurrection. It implies rebellion. It implies insolence. It's a picture of the water breaking over the beach, or maybe from my own experience uh, going on the Mississippi Delta, the water breaching the levees. You know, the, you build these levees up, and, and I think it was back in 1937, there was a great flood in the Mississippi Delta, and they had built the levees up, but they weren't big enough. And the, the dam, the, the, the levees were breached, and it was a, a disaster. It was an uh, emergency, natural disaster. That's what we have here. Reuben is like that water, those big storms, the waves that break over. If you want a different image, it's like a pot of boiling water. And uh, even I know, 
I'm no cook, but even I know that if you leave the pot of boiling water, you keep on boiling, it's going to eventually burst out of the pot. That's Reuben. He always wants to break the boundaries. He always wants to cross the fence. He always wants to see what's greener on the other side. We know that because uh, what, what Jacob says, he reminds us of that uh, flashback story. Reuben, you tried. You took my wife. You took Bilhah. Back in chapter 35, you had relations with her. In other words, you were trying to push yourself into my spot. You, you thought I was down for the count. You thought I was out. You were trying to, to buck me. You were trying to put yourself into leadership in the family. See the point here for Reuben? The point for Reuben is simply this. You could not stay where God had planted you. And therefore you lost all your roots. Or to put it maybe more fancifully, because you couldn't stay where you were by creation, you lost what you had by creation. You were my firstborn, but you tried to usurp authority. Does that sound familiar at all? It's the Bible's plot line. It's the way the Bible starts off in the fall after the creation. God makes Adam the first man. He's beautiful. He's dignity. He's dignified. He's glorious. He's uh, righteous. He's good. You're made good, but he wouldn't stay put. Or even Satan himself, even Satan, the tempter, made beautiful, made an angel, would not stay in his pop, proper place. Satan sought his own glory. He is demoted down to the depths. He sought glory for himself. He lost himself in the so doing. That's Satan, that's Adam, that's Reuben, that's you. I don't know if you've seen the movie back in the 80s, Amadeus. It's about the composer Salieri. Well, it's about Mozart, but it's really about Salieri, I think. Salieri is this guy who worked for the church. He's a godly person, or at least he says he is. He aims at God's glory. And then one day, the upstart composer Mozart comes along. Mozart's very loose morally, but he has so much more talent than, than, than Salieri, right? And so Wolfgang, Amadeus, Mozart starts taking over. He starts getting all the plush patronage, all the great gigs. Salieri gets furious because he is just not as good as Mozart. He becomes furious with God. He says, God, how can you let me come in second place to an immoral person? I am doing this for you, God. And of course, the issue that Salieri is actually doing for God, he's doing it for himself. He's doing it for his own glory. God made Salieri with just that amount of skill and talent, not more than that amount of skill and talent. But Salieri won't stay where he's planted. You see, if he actually wanted God's glory above all else, what, he, what would he do? He would have received what God had given to him and given them back with all he had. He would be content to be in second place because it's God's will. But the reality is that Salieri wants glory for himself. How does the movie end? It's really tragic. Salieri is trying over and over again to beat Mozart to, to win the competition, but he can't. And he ends up in insane asylum. He ends up being committed. He ends up insane, losing his mind because he would not stop raging against who God had made him to be. What's interesting is you read the Bible, you know, you think about Reuben. Uh, Reuben's not like a tribe you know a lot about. No king comes from Reuben's line. No priest, of course, comes from Reuben's line. No prophet comes from Reuben's line. No judge comes from Reuben's line. They are completely unnamed in the great works of Israel. 
Because Reuben reached for something that was not his. Doesn't that remind you of yourself? I mean, if you're honest about it. You strive for yourself. You want. I mean, if, 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 if you had the opportunity to, to do something great for yourself, wouldn't you just take it? Something that seems so right, that felt so good. And God doesn't give us what we need. So I'm going to get angry at God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave God. God's limiting me. You know, if you come to church and you listen to the Bible, Jesus says things that might limit your complete freedom. You might not be able to do all that you think you need to do. Or perhaps, perhaps you're thinking, why don't people appreciate all the work I put in? I mean, I do so much for them. And they don't even, they don't even care. They don't thank me. They don't praise me. My boss, why has he not promoted me yet? I'm working like a dog out here. Why don't my friends talk to me as much? I mean, I'm cool, right? I'm better. Why did God give me this spouse? I'm kinder. Why do my parents not really understand me or my needs? You see, this is the Reuben sin. This is the sin right here. A discontentment with what God has given to us. We don't stay where we're planted. We reach out beyond what God's given us. Second pair of kiddos, sons, not kiddos now, of course, older. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi. They're listed together. They're rebuked together. They're cursed together. You remember the story of what they did? Their sister Dinah was taken, kidnapped. They plotted, they planned out, they massacred a whole city to rescue her from the evil clutches of a local villain. And Jacob says, he does not praise them. Notice, he does not praise them. Verse 7, cursed be their anger, it's fierce, their wrath, for it's cruel. He says, I, verse 6, I don't want your wisdom because your wisdom is horrible. I don't want your advice. You give terrible advice. In fact, he says this. In their anger, they killed men. In their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. That's a weird detail. What does that mean? You know, you know what it means? Don't do it, please, by the way. I don't even know if you have an ox, but don't like take an animal and do this. It's a detail that shows just how brutal these guys were. To, to hamstring an oxen means that you kill the animal, you string it up, but not for food, not for anything. You let it bleed out and die. And that's it just to show how cruel you are. It's a detail that shows that Simeon and Levi were not simply justice guys. They're not simply out for an eye for an eye. They wanted to go far beyond that. They savagely meted out cruelty beyond revenge. So what's their judgment? What's their curse? Verse 7, the last part tells us, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. What does that mean? They're going to be dispersed and separated. They're going to be separated. Separation means they're not as good together because they're apart from one another. Levi and Simeon aren't together. But secondly, individually, they'll be dispersed. And it's funny how that actually happens in the Old Testament. If you read through the Old Testament, it happens in, in kind of unique ways to both, both these guys. It happened to Simeon in the, in the way in which you can check out your maps, the back of your Bible sometime. You look at the, tri- the, the one that shows the tribes of Israel. It always stuck out to me when I was a little boy 
because you have this big tribe, Judah, and then you have this little circle inside of it called Simeon. What happened to Simeon? Simeon basically got uh, swallowed up by Judah. Their whole identity, their uniqueness disappeared. They were dispersed. They lost who they were. And how about Levi? Of course, Levi is perhaps the most interesting one. They become the priestly tribe. They become those who will never fight again in the normal wars of Israel, even if from time to time the priests take up the sword. They will not get any parcel of land. They just get cities of refuge. They are divided because they walk the same path of Reuben, where Reuben was about taking what was his. These men were about killing and destroying what they shouldn't have been. Reuben was about himself, me, 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 and they were about other people. Simeon and Levi cared about their neighbor. They cared so much they wanted to kill him. You see the perversions here. The way of self-glory can be so it can look different, but it's always about you. It's always about you. God finds that very lacking. And yet we see here after the kind of curse we see in verse 8 to verse 12, this blessing. You see this blessing that appears. There is a cursed blessing, and then there's a blessing that goes to the extreme, a blessing beyond all others. We come to the fourth son, and shockingly, he gets the blessing the other guys don't get. I mean, he gets all—he gets four verses to himself. That's more than anybody. But who is it? It's Judah. He's not the guy you want babysitting your kids. He's not the guy you want helping out with your family. This is the guy who bailed on his family, who married somebody who who didn't believe in God, who was an awful husband, a terrible dad, a terrible father-in-law. And yet you remember his story, his confession before his daughter-in-law, Tamar. She is more righteous than I, admitting his guilt before her, freeing her from judgment. And from that moment on, he's changed. From that moment of repentance on, he is transformed. He puts himself in the place of Benjamin. He is willing to let his father play favorites with Benjamin and not with him. He takes a very different path than Reuben or Simeon and Levi. Not because he didn't sin. Notice this, by the way. It's not that Judah was a good guy, and that's why Jacob blesses him. It's not that, not, not, not that at all. It's how he deals with his sin and failure. Look at the blessing. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. What's interesting about this is that this verb praise is almost always used with God. We praise God. We speak of God this way. But here, the brothers will give that honor to Judah. You see, Judah is the one we are to be watching. This is the big question with these 12 kids. Which of these 12 are going to be the line of the promised seed? And you know, if you're a Christian, you know, if you read your Bible, you know it's Judah. But they didn't know that. So Jacob tells them. Judah's the one we are to be watching. He is this lion, verse 9. He's a lion cub. He's been to the prey. He's eaten. He's powerful. He crouches down. Don't wake him up. He'll rip your guts out. The image of the lion, the beast who's mighty, the beast who's majestic, the beast who's also scary. And then we learn the scepter, verse 10, the symbol of a king. The scepter will not depart from Judah. It will never go to another house. It will be passed down until it stops at one man. And then we have this weird 
very controversial text in verse 10, until tribute comes to him. You'll note in the, even, the, in, even in the ESV, uh, it tells you that there are two other translations. I'll give them to you. Sometimes he will say, this is until he comes to whom it belongs or until Shiloh comes or he comes to Shiloh. <clears throat> the, the point simply is, no matter how you translate it, everybody agrees this is talking about the Messiah. A time when he brings peace, when he takes the throne forever. And if you want to know what that looks like, if you want to know what it looks like when Jesus comes, here are the things you need to look out for, okay? I'm going to give the signs right now to look out for Jesus' arrival. Here's what it looks like. First, he'll have a donkey and he'll uh, tether it to a grapevine. Second, he will wash his clothes in wine instead of detergent. Okay, what's the signs? Is that clear? What does that mean? What on earth is this? I mean, should we go check the donkeys over there? Should we see if they're tied up to the vine? Maybe, maybe, maybe that's not, that's not what we need to look for. No, the picture is <clears throat> this Messiah, this king is so rich that he can tie his German shepherd up to the grill while he's barbecuing, even though he knows the German shepherd's going to jump and grab all the meat. He knows the dog's going to eat it. He doesn't care because he has 10 other grills. He doesn't care because he has so much food. This is a Messiah who doesn't care. He can wash his clothes in wine. And I know, mothers, you're saying that will never work. It probably won't work. But the point is, the metaphor is, you can wash your dishes in Dom Perignon. You're that rich. The point is, when this particular king arrives, things are going to be great. Things are going to be powerful. There's going to be wealth. And, you know, if you read about the history of Israel, you see that at times with King David. King David's a mighty warrior. He wins a lot of battles. Solomon, his son, uh, really achieves prosperity. Everybody's really rich. The temple's built. There's a lot of gold there. But these are only precursors to the true king. Of course, who's the true king? Who's the line of Judah? Jesus Christ, you know that. But what does that mean? What does that mean? You ever wonder why the Gospel of John starts the ministry of Christ with one particular sign in John chapter 2? He begins the ministry by turning water into wine. People have a lot of thoughts about what that means. Some people say, well, you know, Jesus loves marriage. That's why he starts off with a wedding feast. Yes, he loves marriage. Every rabbi loved marriage in those days. And we're told by John that the disciples of this rabbi, Jesus, saw this one sign and believed he was the Messiah. Every rabbi loved marriage. That didn't make him unique. It can't be the marriage. You remember the, the scene? They had this wedding in John chapter 2 at, at Cana, and they run out of wine, so Jesus changes the water, he transforms it into 120 gallons, not of uh, box wine, but the really good stuff. Why would the disciples be convinced that here is the Messiah, here is the Christ, when they see abundant, 
amazing wine that you could wash your clothes in so much. Right here, right here, wine is so abundant, you can use it like water. And yet, what makes Judah the guy? What makes him the one who gets this blessing? Is it because he achieved all that he wanted in life? Is it because he looked out for number one? It's because he pursued himself at all costs and nobody else. No, he tried that pathway. He tried doing things his own way and rebelling against his family and going whatever way he thought best. And that didn't work. You see, what made Judah great was not his greatness. What made Judah great was his weakness. We see this, in fact, don't we, in Christ? We see this in Jesus Christ himself because Christ will get wine. Christ gets wine in his life, but not the wine of blessing. In fact, it's appropriate we come to the table this morning because we come to the table where Christ receives the wine of judgment. He receives the wine of curse. He receives the very wrath of God, the new covenant in his blood. He drinks that cup of wrath on the cross due to those who are cursed. And that's the real point for you. Because here's the deal. You and I are cursed. We aren't getting the, the, the joyful blessings of Papa God as some call him. We aren't getting the joyful blessings of Daddy Jacob through our own strength. We are like Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. We are like those who achieve and seek ourselves. And the only reason you and I can get any blessing in this life is because we praise Judah. We praise God himself, the Lion of Judah. And God himself comes in human flesh, not as a mighty lion, but as a lamb. He does not come and roar and cast out all the armies of Rome. He does not do what looks powerful. He takes a different road than the road of Reuben and Simeon and Levi. He takes a different road than the road that your friends want you to take. The road that everything you read about presses you to take. He takes a different road than all your buddies tell you to take the road that's all about you, the road that looks to yourself, the road that uses people for the good they can give you, that only looks at the cash value of any transaction and says that must be the right way because it's more for me. Jesus takes the path of the cross in order that your curse might be swallowed up in it, that the judgment due to you and to me for our high-handed Repeated rebellion, deliberate. Do you understand that we deliberately, even in our Christian lives, rebel against our Savior and that that might be forgiven and that glory might be given to you? This cup is the new covenant in his blood and it is a glorious cup now. This is the way to real glory. It's what Luther would call the theology of the cross. There are two ways to live your life, the theology of the cross, the theology of glory. The owner of the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers, this is a basketball story, sorry, you may not like it, that's okay. The owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers was a guy named Dan Gilbert, 
And after the king, LeBron James, left Cleveland because it was too lowly for him, he went to Miami to South Beach. It wasn't getting him to glory fast enough. The owner, Dan Gilbert, placed an ad in the Cleveland newspaper, and it was a really bad ad for a lot of reasons. He said, I guarantee we're going to win a championship before LeBron does, and that was, was wrong. But he wrote one good thing. He said, some people think they should go to heaven but not have to die to get there. Sorry, but that's simply not how it works. Even a stop clock is right. Dan Gilbert, surprisingly, is right in this. The only path to glory requires a death. You have to die to get there. Or someone has to die for you. You see, that, that's, that's the reality. You have to die to get there. Christian, united to Christ, look to his death for you. See your life hidden in him and walk as he walked. Not for yourself, not seeking your own name, not even using Christianese, using churchy language to make it all about you, which is what we tend to do. But instead, receive the blessing of the weak and shameful and lowly death of the cross for you and for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, as we delight in your glory given to us, we nonetheless realize that it came at a great cost. It cost nothing less than the death of the Son of God for us. I pray that you would set aside these elements, these tokens of your grace to us, these blessed signs and seals of your covenant of grace. We pray that you would uh, make them real to us, that we'll be able to taste and see our Savior, not physically, but spiritually, by faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.